Prison Army Chaplain. My soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I take the questions of the day and do my best to shed some light on them. We meet Hezekiah, this righteous king. He's surrounded by Sennacherib's army. The Assyrians were not just fighting against Judah and Israel, but they were fighting everybody, and they were winning. Uh, They stretched all the way down to Ethiopia, which if you think about that logistically, how far that is for an army that has to travel by ox cart or foot or chariot, um, that's quite a ways. And there's the, the first thing they do is they pray. Prayer is usually the last thing we do when we are surrounded. It is usually what we do at the 11th hour when all else has failed, when we've tried everything. We've tried to weasel our way out of our situation. We've tried to get somebody to help us. We've tried to make excuses. We've tried to lie. We've tried to pretend like it's not happening. Um, all of these responses are our immediate go-to whenever we're surrounded, wherever we're feeling threatened. And yet Hezekiah, it says, when he hears this news about what the Rabshaka has told the people, um, all the people know by now what the offer is, either stay and fight and and fight and we'll destroy you completely or um, surrender and we will move you to wherever we want to move you to, like another country where you don't know anybody. And so um, the first thing they do is they tear their clothes. Uh, and I've mentioned this a number of times before. Um, I have witnessed this um, once in Iraq. I saw a man tear his clothes when he heard that his, his brother had been killed. In, a, in an ambush or an attack. Um, it was an Iraqi army soldier, and he heard that his brother had been killed, and he was crying, and he uh, was weeping, and he tore his clothes right in front of everybody. Um, and I'd never really thought about that, um, how these practices are still being practiced, and, and maybe even here in the United States. Um, grief, grieving processes are different for cultures, what is acceptable, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. Um, I know one of the common expressions in, and I don't know if this is just, you know, white Protestant culture or if it extends to other American subcultures or cultures as well, Um, but sort of saying that, you know, he held it together really well at that funeral, or she held it together really well. She did really well at that funeral, holding it together. Um, We sometimes say that about people, how they looked at funerals, um, that they seem to be in control of themselves. Um, Loud screaming and wailing um, at funerals is not something that um, in a lot of... uh, at least white Protestant 
culture and probably white Catholic culture is not really uh, acceptable in church. Um, and that's a, that's a, that's something I'm not really sure about. I think everybody should grieve in their own way. Um, one of the things that singing and music at funerals does allow people to grieve and verbally, vocally, by crying when there's sort of a background music. Many um, many cultures around the world, and even in the United States, um, more in the past than probably the present, employ professional mourners who go to funerals and will uh, do keening or wailing, uh, loud expressions of grief, so that it gives a cover for the people that are gathered there to have their own moment of grief that's vocal and verbal. There is a power in our voice, especially when it comes to grief, and it's not something we should ignore. So I think for Christians, we have a whole treasury of descriptions of grieving. We have Jesus in the garden. We have Mary, his mother, at the crucifixion. We have um, we have all sorts of pictures of people grieving, and they're very emotional. Um, they are very uh, full of the full range of human emotion. It's not uncommon for people at deathbeds and funerals to laugh, too, to remember a funny moment and the laugh um, of the person that died, even if they died in a horrific way. Our emotions are just that. They're just feelings and emotions. And in a moment of grief, they're often seen as inappropriate if they're too dramatic. Um, and this is to our shame. It's really hard to, to sit with the emotions of other people. Um, Hezekiah lives in a time where tearing one's clothes, clothing is a very appropriate expression of grief. The rabbis commented on this in numerous places. And one of the, one of the things they said is that when, you, when someone dies that you love, and I think it can apply to other griefs as well, breakups, divorces, other losses of relationship. When someone dies, um, don't cut your flesh, the rabbis say. Don't cut your flesh um, because, uh, but it says, do tear your clothes. They say, do tear your clothes because your clothing is outside you. Um, even though it seems like something inside you has died, something inside you has been cut, um, something inside you has been irrevocably been destroyed. Um, the, the loss is still outside you. And so you're tearing your clothing is tearing something outside you, outside of your flesh, outside of your being. Um, and that is a very good thing to do when you're grieving. When we cut our own flesh, when we self-harm and do other things that are self-destructive, we, um, we are taking that internal to a place it never belongs. Even though grief often feels that way, it feels like it's something inside us that we can cut out perhaps. Um, that is not the case. And so um, this kind of grief that, I, that Hezekiah is a grief born of panic. It's fear. It's, it's anxiety. He covers himself with ashes, um, sackcloth. It doesn't say ashes here, actually. It just says sackcloth. Um, perhaps it was ashes, too, but sackcloth. The kingly robes are set aside, and he's wearing a burlap bag, a very visible and potent symbol of his grief, of his fear, of his repentance. This is what repentance looks like. Um, he starts sending messengers to pray 
let's get the prayer going. So the first thing he does is he prays. Um, they they take the threat. Rabshak, the Rabshaka comes back, um, and the threat even goes even gets ramped up even stronger. And yet Hezekiah prays. He prays to the God who is enthroned above the cherubim. Um, he prays to the God who is above all the kingdoms of the earth. And the weird thing is, is that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that Hezekiah worships, is a very local God. Not many people outside of the land of Judah know about him um, yet. And yet, the assertion of the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is that he is Lord of the whole earth, that there is no place you can go where God's presence cannot be felt. And this was a very, this was in sharp contrast to how most people at this time believed. They believed there were certain gods up in the mountains. There were gods down in the plains and the valleys. This happens in a couple battles in 2 Kings where um, the enemy says, well, let's, we can't fight them up in the hills because they have the gods of the hills. And, and the, let's fight him down in the plains. And so Yahweh says, oh, you think that? Well, I'll fight you down in the plains and show you that I'm the God of the plains as well as the hills. So God is the God of everywhere. There's no place we can go where God's presence is not felt. And so um, Hezekiah prays. And since we won't be doing morning prayer tomorrow, the next day, um, and you might read ahead, but I hope you do, the Sennacherib's army, 185,000 of them have surrounded the city. But when morning dawns after this prayer, after this worship of the one true God, they've got a siege ramped and everything put up against the city. They go out the next morning and the whole entire army is dead. All of them, they're dead. Um, except for King Sennacherib. He runs away, runs back to his home, his palace, his temple, um, and dies there. Um, this is um, actually his sons kill him. So Sennacherib, who has defied the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has, has now met his untimely end. His own sons have killed him while he's worshiping in his temple. And his entire army of 185,000 men have died. If you don't think your prayers work, think again. God hears your prayers. Um, God sees the sackcloth you're wearing. God knows every rip in the fiber of your clothing that you rip. God knows these things and God sees these things. And these stories are meant to remind us that even though it seems like God doesn't listen, even though it seems like no one is listening, God is listening. And God's timing is God's timing, not ours. And so we pray, like Hezekiah did, for deliverance. We pray for release. We pray for those things that we need. We pray for protection. We pray for safety. And we pray for these things. We bring them to God, knowing that God has done things in the past and will do things for us in the future. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Lord be with you, and also with you. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Suffrages B. O Lord, save thy people and bless thine heritage. Govern them and lift them up forever. Day by day we magnify thee, and we worship thy name ever, world without end. Vouchsafe, O Lord, to keep us this day without sin. O Lord, have mercy upon us, have mercy upon us. O Lord, let thy mercy be upon us, as our trust is in thee. O Lord, in thee have I trusted. Let me never be confounded. Today is the feast day of Remigius, Bishop of Reims. Remigius might not be a household name for us, um, certainly not for me. But um, on Christmas Day in 496, 496 A.D., so a number of years ago, he baptized Clovis, the king of the Franks. Um, and Clovis, king of the Franks, became a Christian. Remigius was a apostle to the Franks. The Franks were the people that we would now call French, um, living in Francia. Um, the Frankish people were very much divided uh, into different tribal groups and different kingdoms at this time. The fall of the Roman Empire has just happened, and this used to be Gaul, a, a very strong province of Rome. But they had fallen into anarchy after Rome fell. Um, and they had lost the, the, the threads of Christianity that had um, been part of their communities. But Clovis um, conquers a large part of Francia and unites the, the, the world of, you know, Francia and the surrounding areas into the Merovingian dynasty. The Merovingians last a long time. They're very different kind of kings in, in Francia. They don't believe that they are descended from gods, unlike most of the other kings of Europe at this time. Um, but they are very effective in ruling. And so when Clovis I uh, is baptized, this is a big moment for um, French Christianity. Um, so much of our um, Christian uh, discipleship and devotional life comes from French Christians. Um, even though we're English-speaking people here in America, um, so much of, of our faith has been formed, especially uh, here at St. Joan of Arc that um, Joan of Arc is a sort of descendant of these Frankish people who um, stands up for the Christian faith in her time about a thousand years later. But, um, you know, it must have been scary for Remigius to go to this foreign land 
and talk to this very powerful warlord named Clovis and tell him the story of Jesus and tell him about how Jesus calls people to live, not by the power of the sword, but by the power of love. And so his baptism happens um, there. So we thank God for people that are willing to go outside their cultural groups, outside of their comfort zones, outside of their uh, familiar, familiar circumstances to tell the story of Jesus and what Jesus means for them. Remigius, um, even though he started as a bishop at age 21, um, which is kind of early by most calculations, he lived to be about 95 or 96, which is a, a great blessing. And um, we often think of people in this era of the medieval world um, living to be about 33. Those are average ages. Whenever we look at um, how old people are in a certain time, those are average ages, meaning there's a high rate of infant mortality. People did live a long time back then, um, just not everybody did. And a lot of people died in the first three to five years of life, changing those averages. But people did live a long time. Um, he was a student of the Bible. He wrote a commentary on Paul's epistles, um, part of that. So we're, today we remember Remigius and his, uh, his desire to take the story of Jesus uh, to a place that didn't know about it. O God, who by the teaching of thy faithful servant and bishop Remigius didst turn the nation of the Franks from vain idolatry to the worship of thee, the true and living God, in the fullness of the Catholic faith, grant that we who glory in the name of Christian may show forth our faith in worthy deeds. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. One of the cool things about the missionary work of this time period is that for the most part, with several major exceptions, of course, um, they sought not to destroy the lives of people that were converting to Christianity. To become a Christian in this time was to sort of change kings. Um, but it didn't mean that all the things they were doing were wrong or bad or terrible, especially when it came to the practices of their folk religion that they had practiced before and the places and the festivals that they worshiped. There's often a trope about how, you know, Christmas was a pagan holiday that got switched over. And that's sort of seen as a negative thing um, by a lot of Protestants and even pagans today in America. But the reality was that um, just like the people were baptized, like King Clovis, um, so the cultural customs of the day were baptized not done away with, but baptized. And so whenever we, um, as we engage in a new missionary movement in Pflugerville and the surrounding area, um, relate, telling the story of Jesus and the story of the church to people that have never participated in Christianity before, um, or at least in any meaningful way for them or any active way, um, we, we want to make sure that we're not trying to destroy the good stuff in their lives and try to make them stop doing things that are beneficial to them and their community. We want to make sure that Jesus is simply stepping in to baptize the good stuff that's already there and to encourage that growth and, um, and not destroy people's culture and people's heritage and all those things that go with it. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, who did stretch out thine arms of love on the hardwood of the cross, that everyone might come within the reach of thy saving embrace, 
so clothe us in thy spirit that we reaching forth our hands in love may bring those who do not know thee to the knowledge and love of thee for the honor of thy name amen